Hi everyone, and welcome to this month's Mercia Accounts and Audit Podcast. My name is Lee Eaglin, and I'm a technical consultant here at Mercia. This month, we're going to have a look at common issues we find in financial statements, in particular, focusing on the cash flow statement. We'll also take a look at other issues we've seen frequently that would drive an adverse grade in our file reviews, along with other points that, while less significant, generally draw attention to quality issues. Let's take a deep dive then into the cash flow statement and issues that we commonly see in that area. To set the scene, the cash flow statement has been an area of focus within the FRC reviews recently. In particular, they've issued a thematic review in November 2020, then a thematic briefing on the audit of the cash flow statement in May 2021. And then over the past few years, it's perpetually been in the FRC's top 10 topics in their annual review of corporate reporting. In particular, in the most recent review, it's ranked third on that list. Generally, the messaging coming through is that the cash flow statement is a somewhat underloved primary statement. And therefore, we've been relatively bullish and consistently bullish in our gradings where we find material errors on the cash flow statement just to try and sort of give it that extra emphasis, that extra highlight that it does need that TLC that the other primary statements typically get um, as well. If we move on now and start to think through the types of errors and problems that we commonly see with the cash flow statement, Probably the most frequent one and the most frustrating one we see is the inclusion of non-cash transactions. I think despite the requirements of FRS 102, and specifically here I'm looking at Section 7, paragraphs 18 and 19, being relatively clear that non-cash transactions should be excluded from the cash flow statement, this is one of the probably the biggest areas that we see that they continue to be included inappropriately. Again, examples that we see do directly link to some of the ex- examples explicitly mentioned in those paragraphs of FRS 102, in particular, fixed asset additions under finance leases, and then probably less commonly, but we still see them from time to time, we maybe see debt to equity swaps, and then also acquisitions of an entity in exchange for equity. If we take a deep dive into those in a little bit more detail, just to understand what we commonly see as the error and then how they should be treated. So first off, let's have a think about additions under a finance lease. What we generally see there is a grossing up of investing activity, i.e. we'll see a proxy cash outflow to represent the payment for the fixed asset. And then in financing activity, we'll then see a cash inflow proxying a loan received. In some more quirky circumstances, we'll maybe often see a negative repayment rather than sort of an outflow um, of of cash, i.e. the repayment of the finance lease will maybe show as a cash inflow. And that just generally highlights that people haven't thought about how those transactions have flowed through the cash flow statement. And I said, in particular, it should be completely silent on there because no cash has changed hands. But in particular, people just haven't taken the time. Just take a look and think, does that make sense for how it's flown through there? I think for the avoidance of doubt, the only thing we'd expect to see regarding higher purchase or finance leases on a cash flow statement is the periodic repayments, i.e. sort of those periodic capital repayments as you're paying off the required amounts on the finance lease over the duration of the contract. And that would show in financing activity. We now move on and have a look at a debt to equity swap. Again, there, we generally see a grossing up within financing activity. But again, if we think about the substance of what's happened, there's not actually been a repayment of a loan 
and a cash inflow from the issuing of equity. It's purely a reclassification of something within the financial statement. So again, that should be completely neutral and omitted from the cash flow statement. The third one, probably similar to the first example that we looked at, where we're seeing that grossing up between investing activity and financing activity. But again, similar to the last example that we've just touched on, because that's a completely sort of cash neutral transaction. Again, I wouldn't expect to see that appear on the cash flow statement at all. Not within the standard per se, but a common example that we've also seen recently that I just want to draw your attention to is dividends and making sure that when a dividend shows on a cash flow statement, that it truly is a payment of dividends. Now, again, a common example that we'll typically see, if we think about maybe a dividend paid to a parent company, or maybe for a small owner-managed business, it's a dividend that's been paid to a director shareholder. Well, let's say that dividend has been appropriately declared and accrued during the year, but physically no cash has been paid, i.e. That, that dividend payable is maybe sitting in an intercompany payable or in a director's loan account. We'll still then maybe see that showing as a dividend physically paid on the cash flow statement, which because no cash has, has effectively left the business, that's technically incorrect. Now, FRS 102, and here I'm looking at section seven, paragraph 16, gives a choice of where dividends could be classified on the cash flow statement. So therefore, it's, it's quite difficult for me to, to pinpoint specifically where we typically see the grossing up, but generally it could be a grossing up either within operating or within financing activity. We'll also take a look at an example later on in terms of classification issues on the cash flow statement, and in particular, where that payable balance has been picked up on the balance sheet and how that then flows through onto the cash flow statement. And again, that can also cause some confusion to try and sort of unpick sort of where this grossing up um, has occurred. I said, well, we'll take a look at that in a bit more detail shortly. More generally, while we're, we're thinking about dividends, I suppose this is a good reminder just to, to, to be comfortable and remind ourselves that entities should only be accruing and recording a dividend once it's been appropriately declared. And I think key points to remember there are really, really do take care to avoid backdating, make sure that the, the, the client themselves are comfortable, that they have sufficient distributable reserves such that the dividend is legal and then that they're appropriately documented and that that then clearly shows the point in time that the dividend should be recorded. When I've been discussing those issues that I've, that I've just touched on there with firms, quite commonly I'll get a retort back from them to sort of say, well, actually, we, we put them on the cash flow statement because unless they're on there, we don't think the financial statements make sense. And again, that's when I have to sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek sort of draw their attention again to the requirements in FRS 102. And again, here I'm looking specifically at Section 7, Paragraph 18, and that is so explicit that non-cash transactions should be excluded. And in particular, if I then sort of follow up, and I'll quote directly here from the standard when it says, an entity shall disclose such transactions elsewhere in the financial statements in a way that provides all the relevant information about those investing and financing activities. Now, if I put that into layman's terms, what that's saying is, if you think excluding a transaction from the cash flow statement is, means it's not going to make sense, you need to fix that with words or an alternative disclosure elsewhere. What you can't do is misstate the cash flow statement. Otherwise, you've got two, two wrongs there that don't quite make a right. 
another way we, we, we try and get firms to think about this is remember it's a cash flow statement it's not a balance sheet movement statement it's going whilst quite frequently when people are either auditing a cash flow or they're manually preparing a cash flow statement they'll be making sure that they've appropriately mapped all of their balance sheet movements but it's really important just to take a step back from that and think actually what is the substance of that balance sheet movement does it relate to a cash flow if so it should go on the cash flow statement if it doesn't then it should be excluded and that's often quite a good acid test that we see people often forgetting and overlooking. So move on now and think about some wider issues that we see with a cash flow statement. And in particular, we're going to touch on now some classification issues. A common one that we've seen exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic is misclassification of grant claims, i.e. that cash inflow that we've received from, from grant claims. And in particular, in this case, we're going to look at the job retention scheme. Now, most account prep softwares are set up and sort of default to assuming that any grant income will probably relate to a purchase of fixed asset because that's traditionally what we've maybe seen historically. However, said in recent years, we've maybe seen more CGRS claims, sort of those COVID support claims coming in that actually probably shouldn't sit in as, as an investing cash flow and maybe should remain more as an operating cash flow, or let's say it was a bounce back loan or something like that, maybe sort of in a financing cash flow. I think there is just take a step back again, think about the substance of the cash flow that's coming in, and then does it make sense where that then appears and sits in the cash flow statement? And in particular, I've, I'll often see people there sort of deducting it from operating income and maybe putting it into investing sort of inappropriately because that's what the maybe the system has defaulted to. Or in some instance, I've maybe sort of seen it deducted from operating cash flows in the operating profit reconciliation to get to operating cash flows and then added back in on another line, which just looks a little bit nonsensical. So they really do take care just to think through it and, and does it make sense when you're giving it a cold read. If I then follow on to another issue, again, this links back to something that I've already mentioned. We need to really take care and think about the classification of intercompany loans or maybe director's loan accounts, in particular when the indirect method is used for the cash flow statement. Now, in some circumstances where it genuinely relates to, say, intergroup trading activity or the director, shareholder director is either providing services to the company or purchasing services from the company and such, but it's a true trading balance that's arisen there, then to keep that in operating is fine. But more commonly, what we generally see is people overlooking that a number of those intercompany balances or director's loan accounts, maybe the substance of those, it's an underlying financing agreement, i.e. it's either the parent company or the shareholder directors providing finance to the company. And then what we'll see is accounts prep software or as people are just analysing their creditors movements, they'll generally get picked up in that movement in creditors that just gets netted off within that operating activity movement. But in substance, it maybe mirrors more actually somebody's paid more money into the business from a financing perspective, or the entity has maybe repaid a loan that it's historically used for financing. So really take care to think about should those movements remain in operating activities for cash flow, or should they move down and sit within financing activities? If I take a, a quick look now at the reasons for, for those errors that we commonly see now, now clearly if, if you're doing root cause analysis, the, the, the chances are there's likely more than one reason that sort of those errors have, have fallen through the cracks. 
However, if I touch on probably the more prevailing reason that, that sort of arises in most circumstances, it's probably an over-reliance on accounts preparation software. And people then see the very bottom row of the cash flow. They get the, okay, opening banking cash, opening cash and cash equivalents has been able to be reconciled to closing cash and cash equivalents. Therefore, all the cash flow statement works. It must be fine. But as we've just touched on, really do take a step back and sort of think about the substance of the transactions themselves and are they appropriately presented on the cash flow statement. Now, remember, in some cases, that's going to be a classification thought process. In some cases, it's even going to be, should that transaction appear on the cash flow statement at all? So really, really do take care when, when you're going through that. That brings me to the end of everything I wanted to cover on the cash flow statement. So I'm going to move on now and just think about another primary statement where we've seen a few issues cropping up recently. So I'm going to move on now and have a look at the statement of income and retained earnings. And on the rare occasion where that is used, it can be used inappropriately. Now, as a reminder, as a primary statement, that can only be used instead of a statement of comprehensive income and then a statement of changes in equity when the only movements in equity are, say, the profit and loss for the year, maybe a payment of dividends, a correction of a prior period error, or a change in accounting policy. Therefore, if you've got things like a share issue, maybe some fair value movements are recognised directly in reserves, or other sort of movements or reclassifications between reserves, it's not permitted, or your entity will not be permitted to use a statement of income and retained earnings. It has to go for that fuller disclosure that you get from a statement of comprehensive income and then a statement of change in equity. So you really, really do take care if either your firm policy is to generally use what I call a soiree, uh, i.e. The, the statement of income and, and retained earnings, rather than sort of the other primary statements, or it's a client's preference that they would prefer to use that. So just take a step back and make sure that you've not got any of those other movements within equity that could then prohibit that primary statement from being used. Those issues that we've just touched on then would generally drive an adverse grade, particularly sort of where they're material in nature. We're going to move on now and have a look at whilst issues that are generally less significant in isolation, I do just want to touch on because they generally highlight that there are wider quality issues in the financial statements and are often things that, say, a relatively well-informed reader of the accounts can pick up on. And then maybe it just causes them to ask wider questions around sort of the quality of those financial statements and the competence with which they've been prepared. The first one, again, this may sound like sort of the beating of a drum that's been sort of played by the FRC and other regulators and monitoring bodies for a number of years, but we'd still continue to see accounting policies not being properly tailored. Again, probably the most common example of that is maybe a relatively generic revenue recognition policy. And even in some cases, revenue recognition policies that don't actually explain what the point of revenue recognition should be. Linked to that as well, more recently, we've maybe seen clients receiving grant income, but there isn't an accounting policy to explain the basis for, for that recognition. Again, think about sort of certainly most corporate entities out there, they're likely to have a choice between either the accruals or the performance model for, for grants. Again, does the accounting policy make that accounting choice clear? Then on a wider tangent, also think about stripping back accounting policies that aren't technically required. So again, a common example we'll generally see 
is a fairly generic de derivatives accounting policy when an entity might not necessarily have any derivatives in their financial statements. Again, really do think about what accounting policies are in there. Are they all required? And then are they tailored appropriately to fit your client circumstances? Moving on from accounting policies, thinking about sort of other areas of disclosure that we maybe see that are a little bit too generic or don't give sufficient detail. We're going to look now at the critical judgments and key estimates disclosure. Again, in some cases, this will maybe often focus on maybe the incorrect items or, or sort of maybe doesn't quite prioritize those judgments and key estimates as, as we'd expect as an outsider looking in. And if I, if I give an example here, quite frequently, I'll maybe see things like depreciation being talked about, but then they'll overlook maybe a revaluation that's happened during the year. Now, from, from my perspective, I would generally see the, the thought process behind a revaluation is much more of a critical judgment and much more sort of reliant on, a, on an estimate than, say, a, a long-standing depreciation policy and calculation is. So again, really just take a step back and, and think about what's happened for your client's business over the year and does that disclosure really give a fair story of what's happened and sort of really dig into the relevant critical judgments and key estimates that are particular to that entity. Moving on, a particular bugbear of mine is the tax reconciliation. Now, just as a, as a recap, when we moved to FRS 102 sort of a, a good few years ago now, this aligns the disclosure requirements to be much closer to what we see in IFRS, i.e. we're now reconciling the total tax charge. And what that then means is temporary timing differences in general shouldn't appear in that tax reconciliation, but all too frequently I'll still see add back of depreciation and then a less of capital allowances. But in theory, they should all net to nil. Now, in some cases, I can see sort of the same number going in and out. But in some cases, if I look at that tax reconciliation sort of in the financial statements, those temporary timing differences, if you sort of look to eliminate them, don't always net to nil. And that's then indicative that something else has gone wrong in the tax reconciliation. And anybody reading that note that understands what they're looking for, that'll be fairly clear for them to see. So you really do take care. And if it doesn't need to be on there, strip it out to make sure that it makes sense. Just on a tangent to that, I just want to be absolutely clear that the only thing I would generally expect to see in a tax reconciliation that relates to a movement in deferred tax is the impact of rate change, i.e. where we've had to remeasure a deferred tax balance to reflect an upcoming rate change that we're going to see to the, to the main rate of corporation tax, say, in a few years' time. Now, linked to that as well, remember, we're in that scenario currently here in the UK where we are going to be expecting to see a rate change in a couple of years' time. So we are going to see clients start to think about remeasuring their deferred tax balances. And therefore, we will maybe see that coming through as a line on the tax reconciliation. But I said that's the only thing I would expect to see in terms of the deferred tax movement as a standalone line in the tax reconciliation. I suppose more broadly than that, I think just remember as well, there's a requirement for disclosing uh, impact of future rate changes, so i.e. what's likely to happen to the entity's current tax charge as a result of future rate changes. So again, do just be mindful of, of including that disclosure. 
maybe your client hasn't necessarily needed to start remeasuring its deferred tax balances yet because maybe they're sort of two, three years away from that rate change being effective and they're expecting all of the deferred tax to unwind. So they've maybe not had to do a formal remeasurement yet, but they should still be including that narrative to explain what the impact of that future rate change is going to be. Now I'm going to move on and start to, to have a look at sort of emissions of, of some notes and other disclosures that we, we occasionally see as we're reviewing financial statements. Again, probably the most common one we see is potentially where there's a provision that's been buried in an accruals number somewhere or an accruals note, rather than that actually being called out as a provision and then having the necessary disclosure that's been made under Section 21 of FRS 102. Again, remember that's going to be talking through what the details of the provision are, giving details of any uncertainties, but then also sort of give a bit of a movement table to explain how that provision sort of has evolved over the course of the year. Linked to that as well, quite frequently where we do see that disclosure being made, we'll maybe see insufficient detail to explain the nature of the provision. And then also people will often overlook that with what they include in the movement table, they'll maybe be highlighting that a long-term provision hasn't been discounted appropriately, i.e. it won't show any impact of unwounding of a, of a discount in the table. So really do make sure that when you're making those disclosures, you're not indirectly drawing attention to a failure to comply with the wider accounting treatment there. So do really take care and just think about, does the disclosure follow through all the disclosure requirements? And does it also make sure that it, it's not highlighting maybe a lack of compliance around sort of in particular that discounting of long-term provisions. A couple of other areas I just want to quickly touch on is again, do remember that there's a need for disclosing operating lease commitments. Now again, this change when we moved over to FRS 102 a few years ago, but remember that's now showing the total commitment sort of analysed by sort of one, two, and then sort of up to five years rather than the amount payable in the next year. Again, most places we, we go now and, and review financial statements, that's generally not an issue, but we do still see it cropping up from time to time to so do take care on that one. And then the final one I just wanted uh, to mention is just be conscious where your client has sort of various and sort of multiple different classes of share in issue. Is it giving sufficient disclosure to explain what those different classes of shares are, maybe the different voting rights and sort of other rights that are attached to those shares? To recap then, again, I've spent the majority of my time today sort of focusing on, on the cash flow statement and in particular sort of when you're preparing or auditing a cash flow statement, really do be mindful of those non-cash transactions and think about sort of where things are appropriately classified on there. If I had to, to do a deep dive into the most common reason that we've been issuing degrades on our, on our file reviews over the past sort of 12 to 18 months, it's probably issues with the cash flow statement that, that's definitely been up there is, is if not the most common, then certainly one of the most common reasons that we've, we've been doing that. And as a reminder, if you've got clients that typically or want to use a statement of income and retained earnings, there, there is eligibility criteria attached to that. So again, do make sure they've not got other movements going through equity. And then more generally, do make sure that your clients are thinking about tailoring their accounting policies and again, thinking about wider disclosure issues. And again, have they been appropriately tailored to your client's circumstances? Well, that's everything that I wanted to cover today. So thank you so much uh, for listening to this session and I hope you found it useful and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Do take care.